Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Well, all right, Redemption. Okay, big question for you. Big question. Who is the greatest person who ever lived in the history of the world? I want you to think about that. Who is the greatest man or woman Who was the greatest person who ever lived in the history of the world? Now, let's go ahead and get the church answer out of the way. Everybody say Jesus. Jesus, right? Okay, that's obviously the answer because you guys come to church. You know, even the non-Christians know that that Jesus is the answer. And so, you know, the death, burial, resurrection, walking on water, right? Feeding the 5,000, those are all things that we could never do. And so, obviously, Jesus is the greatest person who ever lived. Jesus is in a category unto himself. But other than Jesus... Who is the greatest person who ever lived in the history of the world? I want you to think about that. I want you to to just come up with a name. There's a lot of people who could fill that place in our life. There's a lot of people that could fill that spot. Maybe some of you are thinking, you know, Albert Einstein or William Wilberforce or Frederick Douglass, maybe George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, maybe Rosa Parks or Mother Teresa. There's a lot of different people that we could think about, Dr. Martin Luther King, who would take that place as being the greatest person in the history of the world. And so you're thinking about it. Okay. Do you have it? Okay. These are the people that we look up to. These are the people that we aspire and we admire. These are the people that we model and emulate our lives after. These are our heroes. These are the ones that we want to listen to and learn from because they're the greatest people who ever lived in the history of the world. Now, how many of you, you said John the Baptist. Okay. If that wasn't your answer, you're wrong. Okay. It doesn't matter what other name you came up with. If you didn't say John the Baptist, your answer is wrong because Jesus, the greatest person who ever lived, he said the greatest person who ever lived is John the Baptist. I got a verse for you. Here's what it says in Luke 7, 28. I tell you, among those who are born of women, how many people are born of women? Everybody. Everybody has a mom. And so those of you who are born of women, the greatest is a man named John. John the Baptist is the greatest person who ever lived in the history of the world. And what's amazing about John is that he wasn't a president, he wasn't a politician, that he he never founded a religion, that John, he wasn't rich, he wasn't successful, he wasn't an athlete, he wasn't a rock star, he wasn't a movie star, he wasn't a celebrity, that John, for all we can tell, he lived a poor, humble, simple life, that John never went to college, he, he, he never married, he never had kids, kids. John had nothing in his life that we admire or that we aspire towards, but yet he was still called the greatest person who ever lived in the history of the world. And we don't know about him. We didn't study him in college, right? You you didn't, you didn't have a conversation with him this week, right? Nobody knows about the life of John. We don't focus. We don't learn. We don't look to John and the, he's the greatest person who ever lived in the history world. It really is, it really is something important for us. And so what I want to do is I want to take a look at this man, the man that Jesus claimed to be the greatest person in the history of the world. And we're going to take a look at John. What was it about John's life that made his life so great? John knew the secret that the secret to greatness is to live for something greater than yourself. And all of John's life was lived pointing as many people as possible to Jesus. John lived his life for Jesus. And so we're going to look at John. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 2. We're going to work our way through verse 8. And we're going to look at John. And here's the big idea, that if you want to, if you want to live for Jesus, then you need to learn from John. And so we're going to look at this man named John. We're going to lean in. We're going to listen to And we're going to learn from John because he is the greatest person who ever lived in the history of the world. And John is going to teach us something. And the first thing that John teaches us is that we need to learn to wait. How many of you like waiting? Exactly. This is going to be good for you. Here's what it says. Okay. As it is written. So Mark here, he's going to quote the Bible. Okay. You need to know your Bible. You need to love your Bible. You need to read your Bible and you need to be able to quote from the Bible. And so uh, Mark rather, he's going to quote from the Bible and he's going to quote from Isaiah, the prophet. He says, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make paths straight. Now, Mark here, he's doing something that's actually pretty interesting. 
Okay, you'll look, he says, it is written in the prophet Isaiah. So he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. But if you look right next to that, you'll see that there's a, there's a little mark and you can go all the way down to the bottom of your Bible and in the footnotes, it says that there's actually three different places he's quoting from. Not just, not just Isaiah, but rather Exodus, Isaiah, and the book of Malachi. And what he's doing is he's connecting three different aspects of the story of God, three different parts of God's people throughout all of God's history. And so he starts by quoting the book of Exodus, right? If you're familiar with the story of God's people, then you'll know that uh, in the way back in Exodus, there were slaves that they were in bondage under a wicked, godless man named Pharaoh who oppressed them. And so they're under his rule and reign, and they begin to call out and cry out to the Lord for him to rescue them. And God hears their cries. He raises up a man named Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. And after mighty miracles, God delivers them from the oppression and from the bondage of Pharaoh. He sets them free from Egypt, and he sends them into the promised land. But in order for them to get to the promised land, they have to walk through the wilderness. And you're going to see this word wilderness. It shows up over and over again all throughout this section next week and in the following because this is a big idea to begin Mark's gospel, this idea of the wilderness. And in order for them to get from, the, from Egypt into the promised land, they had to walk through the wilderness. And during that time in the wilderness, they begin to gossip and to grumble and to complain, and they begin to accuse and blame God. And they said, God, you just send us out here to die. And they begin to accuse and to blame God because they don't like waiting. How many of you, you don't like waiting? And that's exactly what they did. And so, so, so they're looking back. And they're saying, God, you brought us out here to die, right? We need to go back to Egypt because at least there we had the basic necessities for everyday life. And they begin to complain, accuse, and to blame God because they did not like to wait. And God said, you don't like waiting? Guess what I'm going to make you do? I'm going to make you wait. And they had to wait 40 years. Okay, it took, them, it took them 40 years to go from Beaumont to Dallas. That's about the distance. And they had to learn to wait while they're in that wilderness. And so this is the story of God's people, that there's sin, there's shame, there's separation, and there's rebellion. And in that process, God is teaching them, you need to learn to wait. So for 40 years, here's God's people, right? Walking in circles. This is them, right? Completing the process. It's all a big pattern, right? It's just a cycle. They're walking, wandering through the wilderness, That's the story of God's people, that they're just repeating the same pattern of sin and shame and separation and rebellion. And so God makes them wait, and they waited for 40 years. Eventually, that generation died out. God raised up another generation. They were able to enter into the promised land, and everything is well, right? Wrong. You would think that they learned their lesson, but then comes a man named Isaiah. And Isaiah is a prophet, and he is preaching, and he is proclaiming, and he is telling the nation of Israel that you're not waiting on the Lord. You haven't learned your lesson. You have sin, you have separation, that you have turned your back, rebelled against the Lord. And so he begins to call his people back to him. And he says, if you don't listen, God's going to come in, and he's going to send you back out into the wilderness. They did not wait on the Lord and back into the wilderness they go. Babylon comes in, they take the, overthrow the nation, take them captive, right? They go into exile and God's people are back into the wilderness. This time, not for 40 years, this time for 70 years. Because they refuse to wait, they go back into the wilderness. Here's the story of God's people and they're just walking in circles, completing the cycle, Right? It's all a process. They just keep repeating the same pattern because, well, that's the story of God's people. Sin, shame, separation, rebellion. And, and Isaiah, he says, he says that God is going to deliver you again. God's going to send you back again. And, and that he's going to prepare the path and he's going to make the way straight. But you need to learn to wait. And so they waited for 70 years and then, and then God did it. And, and they come back. And they were delivered and they've been set free. And you think that this time they would have learned their lesson, but nope. Right, then comes another guy named Malachi. And Malachi, he comes to the people of of Israel, God's chosen people. And he says, you have forgotten the Lord. You have forsaken the Lord. You're not waiting on the Lord. You've turned your back on the Lord. And so God again is going to send you into the 
wilderness, but not, not a physical wilderness, but rather this time it's going to be a spiritual wilderness. That he's going to remove his presence. He's going to remove his voice. That God is no longer going to speak to you and you're going to learn in the wilderness how to wait. And this time they don't wait 40 years. They don't wait 70 years, but rather they wait 400 years. 400 years in the wilderness, walking in circles, right? It's all a process. It's all a big pattern. They're in the, the, the wilderness. It's just a cycle, and it's all a big process and a pattern of God's people of sin, shame, separation, and rebellion. And God says, you're going to learn to wait, and it's going to take you 400 years. How many of you hate waiting? Okay, how many of you would hate to wait 400 years? You think, that's a really long time. I've been holding on, but I don't know if I can hold it that long. 400 years. There's a gap between Malachi and Mark where the people are learning how to wait. While you are waiting, you also need to learn. You need to learn how to listen. And so it's been 400 years where God has been bringing them to wait and to eagerly anticipate and to listen to what it is that the Lord is trying to tell them. And so while you wait, you also need to learn how to listen. Here's how he says it next in verse four. John appeared. Okay, who's that? Okay, that's the messenger. That is the prophet. That is the one that God is gonna send to prepare the way. That is the one that God has been promising all of this time. Some of you are wondering, did God forget them? Did God forsake them? Did God turn their back on them? Did God walk out on them? No, because he says that I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way. They've been holding on to this word and here he is. Here's the messenger. Here's the one that God said was coming. We've been waiting. But have you learned to listen? Have you learned to listen? Here's the messenger. So, so what is his message? Baptizing in the wilderness. There's that word again, wilderness. He's like, yes, Mark, I get it. We're in a wilderness. It's hot. Life is hard. Life is hell. We're exhausted. We're tired. We're frustrated. We're, we're struggling. I understand we are in a wilderness. Do you need to keep repeating yourself? And Mark says, yes, because God speaks to us in the wilderness, that there is a word for you in the wilderness. If you are willing to listen, God says to us, and the message that he is sending that messenger for is to proclaim a message of baptism, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. God's word to you in the wilderness is for you to repent. How many of you, that's not the word you were looking for, right? That's not the word that I was hoping for. After 400 years, your word to me is to repent. And John comes along and he begins to preach repentance. This is not the word that we are looking for, but friends, this is the word that you need to listen to. John says you need to repent. Why? Because repentance breaks the pattern. Repentance breaks that cycle of sin and shame and separation and rebellion. Repentance breaks the pattern if you are willing to learn how to listen. The message of repentance is not a very popular message. This is the message that John the Baptist, he comes in, he's proclaiming because it prepares the way and he's telling the people that you need to learn how to repent. And it's not a popular message. This is the message of all the prophets of the Old Testament because the story of God's people has always been that same singular pattern. That's their, that's their pattern, that's our pattern, and that's the pattern of God's people. Sin, shame, rebellion, but repentance breaks that pattern. And so John comes along and he begins to preach this message, and it's the same message from the very beginning. And each one of the prophets of the Old Testament, they were murdered for this message because repentance is always met with resistance. Because people don't like to be told they're wrong. People don't like to be told, nope, that's not right, right? That's not how it's supposed to be, that you are in sin, that that is not God's heart, that is not God's way, that is not the best intentions for your life. You are wrong. You need to repent. The prophets were murdered for this message. John the Baptist was murdered for this message because repentance is always met with resistance. And people often wonder, they say, they say even today, it's not a popular word. But why would we preach about repentance? 
right? That's old school, right? That's outdated. That's, that's what they did. All that, all that doom and gloom and fire. Why do we need to talk about repentance? Nobody likes that. That's not how we build a church anymore. That doesn't make people feel warm and fuzzy and cozy. We don't need to preach repentance. Why don't we just talk about love? Why don't we just talk about grace? Why don't we just talk about tolerance? Why don't we just talk about forgiveness? And all those things are wonderful things, but they are impossible apart from repentance. There is no forgiveness without repentance because repentance breaks the pattern. And so John comes along and he preaches repent and he's met with this resistance because, because we all face this. We all struggle with this. We all wrestle with this. And this is not a very popular word today. So let's talk about it because that's the type of church we are. So what is repentance? In the Greek, it, it literally means a change of mind. But in, according to the Christian, it's so much more than just a change of mind. It's actually a change of life. That it's a change of direction. So this is what your life looks like. That your life is facing in this direction. That your life is towards sin. This is how we are all born. Facing towards sin. So you, you live your life this way. It's what you want. It's how you live. It's what you need. It's what you desire. And that you live as if you're your own God and you are breaking God's laws. You're breaking God's commands. You are breaking God's heart. This is what sin is. That your face is towards sin and your back is towards God. Repentance is a change of direction. That now my face is towards the Lord and my, my back is towards my my sin, that this is my old life, this is my new life, that's my old nature, this is my new nature, this is who I was, this is who I am, that I'm going to live in this direction. That it's living in the face of God. That's what the Puritans used to call it. The Puritans said living quorum Deo, which means living in the face of God. That God's life would be your life, that God's heart would be your heart, that God's love and God's will and God's ways and God's word would be in you and that you're constantly, continually following after the Lord with all of your life. That is what repentance is. That you're living in the face of God. Now, repentance is not just feeling bad about what you do. Okay, a lot of people feel bad about what they do, but that doesn't mean that it's actually genuinely true repentance. There's a difference between remorse, which is what a lot of people feel. Oh, I can't believe I did that. I feel so bad. I'm sorry. Right? That's remorse. People can have remorse for lots of things, but that doesn't mean that anything's actually going to be different in their life. Repentance is different than just remorse. The Bible says that, that godly sorrow does not lead to, worldly sorrow rather, does not lead to true repentance. And so what is this change? What is this new direction? Well, repentance is actually a couple of different things. Three, that it, it starts with confession. Okay, that you have to confess your sins. Okay, confess it. You need to name your sin because when you name your sin, it loses its power over you. Call it for what it is. See, sin is not just a mistake. Sin is not just a oops, right? It's not a mess up. It's not a slip up. It's not, oh, hey, you know, I just really had a bad day. No, sin is a violent offense against a living and holy God. Name it for what it is. Say it, pornography, adultery, lying. Say it's stealing. It's, it's drugs, alcohol, sex. Name it for what it is. Call it what it is. Because when you call it what it is, it loses its power over you because it's no longer in secret and you don't have to live in shame. Confess your sins. You say, Byron, that's hard. I know it's hard. You say, but Byron, then people will know. I know they will know. And that's what it means to be a Christian is that you live in this community and accountability, that there is a vulnerability. You need to name it, call it for what it is. Confess it with your mouth. The second is contrition. That contrition, it means that there is, there is a, that you are grieved over it. That it really does break your heart. That, that it breaks your heart because it breaks God's law, it breaks God's will, it breaks God's heart. And that you are moved because of your sins. If, if, if sin does not bother you, friends, something is wrong with you. If you're not moved by it, if you're not grieved by it, if it, doesn't, if it doesn't inspire anything in you, if you're like, that was what I did and it's not that big of a deal and I'm probably going to do it again, friends, there is something wrong because that's not genuine repentance. That's, that, that is worldly sorrow, but that is not godly sorrow that leads to life. So there's, there's, there's confession, there's contrition, and ultimately that leads to number three, which is change. That your life 
changes, that your heart changes, your mind changes, that your will changes, that your direction for your life, it begins to change, that you don't want to do the things that you used to do because of who he is. You don't want to live the way that you used to live because of who he is. And you're constantly, continually walking in, living in the very face of God. That's what repentance is. And as Christians, we don't repent once. All of our life is a life of repentance, that we are constantly repenting before the Lord, and He is constantly drawing us in, and He is constantly shining His face upon us, and we are learning to live every single day in the face of the Lord. Martin Luther, when he nailed the 95 Theses on the door, the very first line was, all of the Christian life is a life of repentance, because that's what it means for us to follow after Jesus. And so John, he comes along and he begins to teach and he says, you're not right. This is not right. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. You are wrong. You're heading in the wrong direction. This is not what God intends, that you are in danger, friends. And John comes along and his message to the people is you need to repent. And he calls them to repentance. This is not our favorite message right? I mean, how many of you, you woke up this morning and you're like, man, I wonder what the pastor is going to preach on. I heard Redemption's kind of a cool church and I want to go visit it. So you, you get online, you see, okay, 9.30 and 11.15, right? 9.30 is a little early for me. So I think I'm going to go to the 11.15 because then I can drink my coffee. I can wipe the crust out of my eyes, right? I can get the kids ready. We're, we're going to get in our car. We're going to drive down. We're going to, you know, sing a couple songs. We're going to find our seat. And then what's the pastor going to preach? And then all of a sudden, here I come out from the middle and I'm like, Repent, 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 repent. How many of you, that's the message you expected? Not the word that we were looking for, but it is the word that we need to listen to because repentance breaks the pattern in your life. It's not the word you were looking for, but it is the word that you need to listen to. And so if you can listen to this, well, then we also need to learn to receive. How do you think people received this word? Right? Was it good? Was it bad? Were they like, oh, that's what I always wanted to hear. How do you think people received this word? Well, let's keep reading because John is going to teach us how to learn to receive. Here's, here's how he says it. In all of the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Apparently, the message was pretty well received. Okay, apparently it was because it says all of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him. That's, that's the entire country. This could be upwards of 300,000 people over a course of about six months who are just flocking to listen to this wild man out in the middle of the wilderness, standing in a river, yelling at people about their sins and telling them to repent and talking to them about baptism. I mean, John's message is wild. I mean, he's basically like sinner, 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 sinner. You're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. I mean, that's John. And John, I mean, he's basically like Oprah in reverse. He's like, everybody is a sinner. That's the message of John. And apparently, this was very interesting for a lot of people. And what I find so fascinating about John's message is that John wasn't preaching to who we think he's preaching to. See, when we read this, we're like, oh yeah, he's preaching to those sinners. Way to go, John. Get all those sinners. But that's actually not who John's preaching to. That John's not preaching to the dregs of society. See, what we think about like, sinners, we, we, we think about those people. You know, those people. We, we think about you know, like the drug addict and the alcoholic. We think about the, you know, the, the liar. We think about the thief. We think about you know, the, the wife beater. Those are the people that we tend to think about when we think about sinners. Those people. right? But that's actually not who John's preaching at. In, in fact, he says, he says, all of the country, Judea and all of Jerusalem. Who's that? Those are the good people. He's preaching to the, the good people, the decent, moral, religious, spiritual people of the day. These are your normal, everyday Jewish people. They probably you know, grew up going to synagogue, Sunday school. Right? They, 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 they obeyed the dietary customs. They followed the law and the Torah. They kept the, they kept the Old Testament. They probably had parts of it memorized that they paid their taxes and their tithes. I mean, these are the type of people that you probably want in your church. And, and so they're coming, and they're coming to listen, and John's telling them, you you good, moral, spiritual, decent people, you need to repent. Now, this doesn't make any sense to us. He's telling the good people 
The good people with a good life, with good intentions, with good morals, with good values, who, who do good things, he's telling them they need to repent. This doesn't make any sense. And this doesn't make any sense to us in our day and age because the way that we see things is that there's basically two categories of people. The way that we see it is that there's good people and then there's bad people. And you know the difference. The good people, well, well they're the people like us. That they work nine to five jobs, they you know, married with 2.5 kids, they tuck their shirts in, they can do an Excel spreadsheet, right? They tell a couple of jokes and they're genuinely very nice people. And so we call those the good people, right? And then there's the bad people. You know the bad people. The bad people don't look like us. They don't act like us. They don't think like us. They don't talk like us. They don't dress like us. They don't live in our neighborhoods. You know, they don't vote the same way in which we vote because they're the bad people. And so the way we see it is there's good people and then there's bad people. The way that John sees it is there's just people. That everybody's bad, nobody's good, and religious people are the worst. Religion is the worst. And he's telling all these people, you're the worst because you think you're better than everybody else. That you think you're better, you have a longer finger, you love to point at other people, and you think that your good deeds and good works equals a godly life. You are religious, and that is the worst. Religion, friends, is the worst. And he's preaching to religious people. Hear me on this. Religion, in essence, is pride. That's exactly what it is. You think that you can earn God's favor by just living a good life. That you're better than all those other people and you don't look like them or act like them and you don't live your life like them and so praise God because he loves you more. That's religion and that is wicked. The Bible says that, or rather St. Augustine, the early church father says that pride is the mother of all sins. Pride is the root of religion. And if it's the mother of all sins, it's pregnant with all forms of evil. Therefore, that the cause for all of the problems in the world, I believe, is a result of this religion. Listen, religion is not a good thing. Pride is not a good thing. It's what got Satan kicked out of heaven. It's not going to be what gets you in. And John is telling religious people that you need to repent. I love this. Okay, it's a hard word, but I, I love this. Because the people, they didn't know what to how to respond. They didn't know how to even receive this. I mean, he's like, you telling me that I need to repent? They've never heard this before. Listen, these are the Jewish people. These are the chosen people. These are God's people. And he's yelling at them. Like, what do you mean? Who are you talking to, John? John's like, I don't see anybody else I'm talking to you. Seriously? Yes. You need to repent. Oh, well, I've never heard this before. Well, now I'm telling you. Now you have, and you need to repent. Well, John, that's not, a very, that's not a very friendly message. That's actually kind of offensive. And John's like, you know what's offensive? You. You're offensive. Huh, it sounds like you're telling me I'm wrong. Then my point was clear. Right? Repent. Like, I, I've never heard. Okay, let me go get a couple of my buddies. So they go over back to Judea at Jerusalem, and they're like, hey, there's this crazy guy down in the river, yelling about sin and repentance, and he's telling me that I'm wrong. Really? Yeah, let's go check it out. So they bring all of Judea and Jerusalem. All right, John, one more time. What was that? How did you say it? Just so the people in the back can hear you. And John's like, repent, 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 repent. He just keeps punching them in the nose. He's like, get down here, get in the water, be forgiven of your sins, and repent. People are like, whoa, that's crazy. I never heard this. And what's so fascinating about the message of John is that John is calling the church folk. Like these are the good, moral, spiritual people. He's calling the church to repentance. And he's telling them, good works, good deeds does not equal a godly life. And you think you're better than everybody else. But you need to stop comparing yourself to them and start comparing yourself to him. And you will see how we all fall short. Right. He's calling the church to repent. Trust me, this is not an easy thing to do. To call the church? No. And this is one of the things I get so concerned about. So often I, 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 I get fearful and sometimes it keeps me awake at night. Because I know that it is possible for some of you to walk into these doors week in, week out, listen to the same message over and over again, and you can walk out there unwilling to receive, be totally deceived, and think that just because you're in church, it means you're in Christ, and that's not true. 
that you can be religious and you can still be unrepentant. And there's a lot of people who profess a faith that they don't actually possess. Listen, you can be born in the church and then you can not be born again in Christ. There is a difference. Big difference because you can be that religious and you can still be unrepentant. But if you were to ask anyone, do you believe in God? Of course, the answer is going to be yes. Right? I mean, the answer, overwhelmingly, nine out of 10 Americans, you could just walk up to somebody at Parkdale and you're like, hey, do you believe in God? They're going to be like, oh yeah, absolutely. I believe in God. Now, nobody ever tells you what God. Nobody ever tells you what beliefs about that God. Nobody ever says anything. They're like, yeah, sure, I believe in God and I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Right? And so 90% of Americans genuinely believe that they believe in God. Right? So you can ask anyone and that's what they're going to say. But it doesn't seem like that. It doesn't look like that. When we survey across the nation, across the church, across the culture, it seems like there is just something different. And so while we, we take that 90%, we think everything's fine and everything's okay and people are, you know, just people. There's a guy named John Dickerson a couple of years ago, and he wrote a book called The Great Evangelical Recession. And what he did is he took this idea of 90%, and he thought, hmm, that's strange. So let's just investigate it a little bit. So he's a researcher. He runs some numbers. He, he does some stats, and, and he, he saw that the question that people ask is, do you believe in God? And yes, people do. But what he discovered is if you change the question, you change the answer. That when you begin to ask different questions, you begin to get different answers. And sort of saying like, oh, do you believe in God? Right? He asked, well, do you hold to the basic beliefs of a Christian faith? Right? And so, you know, he just asked some basic orthodox questions like, like, do you believe in the Bible, that it's inerrant, infallible, that is the inspired word of God, that is the final rule and authority in the life of the believer? Like, do you believe in the Bible? The second is, do you believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons? Do you believe in the cross, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus in our place for our sins, atoning as our sacrifice? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross? Do you believe that Jesus is coming again one day? Right? And do you hold to the importance and value of the local church? Basic questions. The answer went from yes to uh, no. Right? It went from 90%, and according to his research, 9. That there's 9% of people in America actually hold to saving faith. 9%. We have a lot of people who think that just because that they were born in church means that they were born in Christ. We have a lot of people who profess a faith they don't possess. There's a lot of people who believe, but they have not been saved. And there is a big difference between religion and repentance. And friends, you can be born in the church. You can be baptized in the church. You can grow up in the church. You can have your wedding in the church. You can have your funeral in the church. And then you can close your eyes, close that casket, and you can still wake up in hell. Just because you are religious, it doesn't mean that you're repentant and John the Baptist is telling the church, you need to wake up. You need to get ready. You need to get right. You need to repent. This is a hard word. Amen? But it's a word we need to listen to. It's a word that we need to receive. And I think we could do a better job as a church to receive this word. If you're willing or able to receive this, well then, how are we supposed to respond? Because God's word demands a response. And so, so John, he, he's calling people and then he's telling people, okay, you need to respond. You're gonna, need, you're gonna need to do something. And so what is it that he says that we need to do to respond? He says, they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. Now, this is where we get his name, John the Baptist. Okay, we don't call him the Baptist because he was Southern Baptist. Okay, I love a lot of you. You grew up Southern Baptist, right? SBC brothers and sisters, right? Yes, thank you. You're welcome, right? Glad to have you. But he didn't go to Awanas, right? He didn't give to the North American Mission Board. That's not the reason that he called him the Baptist. They called him John the Baptist or a baptizer because he demanded a response to his preaching. He wasn't going to let you just show up and sit in the back and walk away unchanged. He says, no, no, no. When you get in here, you get in that water and you do something about it. John called people to respond because God's word always 
demands a response. That it's not just enough for you just to receive it, you need to respond. It's not enough just for you to hear it, you actually need to do something about it. It's not enough for you to have information, but you need to have transformation because the last thing you need in your life is more of God's word to be disobedient to. And so he says, you need to respond. God's word demands a response. And the the first response, John says, is baptism. This is the beginning. This is the first response. This is the first thing. This is the first step. This is the most simple process in following Jesus is to step in the waters of baptism. He says, repent, be forgiven of your sins, and be baptized. It's the first thing. We still believe this today. Right? 2,000 years later, Redemption Church, we still hold to this. We still believe, and we still baptize in the same manner and in the same mode that John the Baptist did all of those years ago because it is the first step in following Jesus. And we've, over the two short years of our church, we baptized 66 people. That there's been 66 people in our church who have responded to the word of God, who have repented of their sins, who have walked in this newness of life. This is 66 people who have gone public with their faith before God and the church and everybody else, letting the whole world know that I believe, I belong, and I want to be like Jesus with the rest of my life. That 66 brothers and sisters who are now part of the family of God. 66 people. That is amazing. But what blows my mind is even after our big baptism Sunday celebrations, where we, we, we make a big deal out of it, throw a huge party, Right, we have everybody standing in the street. We we have videographers and photographers, and and, and we make a really big deal. People get awesome T-shirts, and, and we we dunk people under the water, and it's this big party. People still come up to me and they say, "That's not for me." They'll come up to me and they say, "Well, I see it in the scriptures, but nah, I don't really want to do that. I don't want all these people to look at me." Right, I understand that you know the Bible says it, but. I'm not really going to do that. I know why Jesus did it, Byron. You, you really present a really good case, but, but I'm not going to do that because I don't think it's necessary for my life. All that goes to show me is that a person with that attitude is still unwilling to respond to God's word. Listen, baptism is the first step. If you can't be obedient in baptism, how do you expect to be obedient in anything? Listen, that's the easiest thing. If you can't do that, there's so much more that God's going to ask of you. And if you can't get in those waters, well, friends, let me tell you, as simply, as lovingly, as clearly as I can, something is wrong. Something's wrong with your heart. Something's wrong with your life. Something's wrong with your love. Something's wrong with your understanding of who God is in the scriptures. But something is wrong. The Bible knows nothing of a Christian who is not baptized. You're not going to find it anywhere. It's completely foreign to Christian faith to have someone who claims to follow Jesus and has not yet been baptized. You're not going to find it in the Bible anywhere. Never once is it like, you know what? It's okay. Don't worry about it. You do you. God's never going to say that. In fact, the Bible says exactly the opposite because John the Baptist comes and he says, be baptized. Next week, Jesus is going to come on the scene and Jesus is baptized. And then at the very end of his life, the last thing that he tells his disciples is to go and baptize. Peter stands up on Pentecost. He preaches. People get filled with the Holy Spirit and and then 3,000 people are saved and baptized in a single day. That Peter, again, preaching to Cornelius, his whole household is baptized. The Gentiles get baptized in the Holy Spirit and baptized in water. And then Paul comes along to the Romans and he says, death, burial, resurrection for the newness of life. You need to be baptized. And for the last 2,000 years, all Christians from all churches, from all denominations, from all tribes and tongues, whether rich or poor, black, white, Latino, Asian, young, old, men, women, all Christians have been baptized. You're not going to find it anywhere in the scriptures where baptism is not a big deal. And you think, Byron, you're making this a big deal. The answer is because it is a very big deal that you need to be baptized. And so my question for you is this, have you been baptized? If not, we want to give you that opportunity. That we're going to give you an opportunity, not today, but in a couple of weeks at the end of the series, we're going to have another baptism Sunday. And we want you to sign up. Go to the Connect Desk, fill out a card. One of our team members will follow up with you because we want you to be obedient to the Lord through baptism. Because it is a big deal. 
And we would love to be able to celebrate it with you because that's the first step in following after Jesus. And some of you are thinking, but Byron, didn't we just have a baptism Sunday? Yes, we did. And we're going to have another one because we believe that every single week God is bringing people into our church so they can hear this message and that they can respond because every single week we believe that God wants to save one more. And so that's going to give us opportunities for more people to be baptized. And so we're going to do it again. And then we're going to do it again after that. And then we're going to have another one. And then we're going to have another one. And for the next 20 years, for the next 50 years, for the next however long the good Lord sees that this church should be open, we are going to continue to baptize as many people as we can because it's a big deal. And so the first step is baptism. Okay, That's the first step. So what comes after that? Well, it's this four-letter word that will change everything. It's very, very important. Four letters. It's called life. Have you ever heard of it? Right. Do you have one? Right. Life. It's kind of a big deal. And so first step, baptism. Second step, well, we, we like to call that life. And so he wants to teach us to learn how to live. If you can respond, then you can learn how to live. Here's what he says in verse 6. Now, John. So he's talking about John. So we go from John preaching, and now we're going to look at John as a person. We go from John as the messenger or his message, and we're just going to look at the messenger. So now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Strange dude, right? And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, whose strap of sandals I am not, un- I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, let me ask you a question, okay? Because I've, I've learned that one of the best ways to understand something is by asking questions. And so, so let me ask you, a question. Honestly, seriously, how many of you would actually learn from this guy? How many of you would actually listen to what it is that he has to say? I mean, John, right? He's out in the middle of the woods in the wilderness, right? He is a crazy person standing in the river out in the middle of nowhere, just yelling at people, right? That's him. He doesn't have a church, right? He's like the equivalent of a street preacher, He's that guy on the side of the road, right, just yelling at people, repent, like be bad, talking about the Holy Spirit. He's just yelling at people about their sins, right? How many of you, it's like that guy? Oh, no, let's not go to that guy. Let's not, oh, let's not do that. We don't want to listen to that. And his message is not a message that we hear in our churches, right? Sin? Oh, let's not talk about that, right? Repentance? Nope, nobody likes that. Baptism in the Holy Spirit? That's weird, yeah, let's stay away from those conversations because we don't want to be associated with those, those type of people and we don't want to be that type of church. So we tend not to listen or talk or, or to learn about things that John is preaching about. Right? Nobody probably would go out and listen to that guy. Now, how many of you would like to live like him? How many of you would like to live your life like this? You mean, you mean like bugs, right? Wear camel skin? No, thank you. Like I'm going vegan. Like, that's, that's your response, okay? The only thing worse than being like John the Baptist is being a vegan, amen? And so, never mind, I'm just kidding. I love my vegan brothers and sisters. But John, right, he, he, he's, he's out there, right? He's, he's strange. He, he, he's weird. Jay, John, he, he doesn't have anything that we look up to. Like John, he, he, was, he didn't have an education. He didn't go to college. He wasn't an athlete. He wasn't a celebrity. He wasn't a rock star. That John, right, as far as we can tell, he was never married. He never had kids. He never, he never had the life that so many of us, we look up to, that we want to learn from, that we want to live like, that we admire or that we inspire or that we emulate or that we want to model ourselves after. But yet, Jesus said that he is the greatest man who ever lived. And if John is the greatest and we want nothing to be like him, then something is wrong with us. Because Jesus says he is the greatest. If there's something about John's life that we seem so allergic to, there's something wrong with us, not him. Because Jesus said he is the greatest. John must have known something about life that we seem to miss. John must have understood something about how to live that we seem to have overlooked. John must have known something that we tend to have neglected. For Jesus to say, this is the greatest man in the history of the world, and we reject his life. There's something wrong with us, not with him. And so what I want to do is I want to just show you the life of John. Because John's telling you, if you want to learn how to live, well, then you're going to need to learn how to wait. 
That's the whole purpose of John's life. What's the secret to John's greatness? Is that he lived for something greater than himself. That all of John's life was lived to point as many people to Jesus as possible. John didn't live for John. John lived for Jesus. And friends, let me tell you, there is nothing better than a life lived for Jesus. So John's trying to teach you that you need to learn to wait so that you can learn to live. He's saying you need to learn how to listen so that way you can learn how to live. You need to learn how to receive and to respond so that way you can learn how to live. And he's trying to teach us how to live for Jesus. I told you at the beginning that the big idea was the more we learn from John, the more we're going to live for Jesus. So what I want to do with the remainder of our time is I want to do a character study over the life of John. What was it about John? What is it that John had? What is it that John knew? What is it about the way that John lived his life that made him the greatest man who ever lived? And so Mark tells us five things that we can learn to live like John. The first is this, that John lived simply. Okay, John lived a very simple life. It said he, he, he wore camel's fur, right, had a leather belt, that he you know, ate locusts and honey. All of that characterizes a person who lived a very simple life. Now, some of you are wondering, like, if I want to be like Jesus, does that mean that I have to sell all my possessions, move out into the woods and eat bugs? No, right, that's not what I'm saying. Um, but John had a principle, and the principle was that of simplicity, that John lived a very simple life. Now, listen, this is very foreign to us in America, right? I'm going to move from preaching to meddling, so you're welcome. So in America, we used to have what's called the American dream, right? That is to, you know, get a job, make a little bit of money, leave a legacy. That's what people look for. But today, the American dream has actually become the American nightmare, because that's what it is, that, that the average American has a hundred and $50,000 in debt, another $39,000 in student loans. Meanwhile, they only make $59,000 a year, right? I'm not very good at math, but I know that those numbers, they don't add up. And what that means is that we're living our life on credit, that we're living our life totally in debt, and that we're spending money we don't have, and we're trying to live a life that we can't actually afford. See, we don't value simplicity in America anymore, that, that we don't understand it, we don't know it. In fact, all of our life is to be able to accumulate as much stuff as possible, right? That's what our life is. Oh, that looks nice. Oh, what is that? I don't even know, but I need it, right? And so we just keep getting more stuff, and then we fill our houses with all this stuff that we don't even know what it is, and then so we just start paying another person to keep all of our stuff for us. We're like, what is that? I don't know. Let's just put it in. What's the word? Storage. Now, it's not even storage. It should be called hoarding because that's what it is. You're like, I don't know what this is, but I can't get rid of it. So let's just put it there. And maybe our grandkids or church might eat it one day. That's, that's what we do. And so we just throw it over there and we pay somebody else to keep all of our stuff for us. Now, the storage industry in America, the annual revenue is $30 billion. That we pay people $30 billion a year just to hold all of our stuff. Now, for reference, and to make you feel bad, guess how much it would cost to end world hunger? $30 billion. You're like, hey, those two numbers are the same. Exactly. Exactly. That we, 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 could, we could end world hunger, but we love our stuff. See, sociologists, they call this conspicuous consumption. This is when you, when you buy things, not for the functionality of the product, but rather the identity that it produces. That you don't buy things because you need it. You buy it because you need what they think about you. And so you're spending money that you don't have to impress people you don't like and, and to buy things that you don't actually need. And you think, oh, if I lived in this neighborhood, then people will finally think that I'm successful. If I drive this car, well, then people will finally think that I'm important. If I wear these clothes and this brand, if I hang out with these people and go to these restaurants and work at these jobs, well, then I'll be loved and then I'll be accepted and then I'll be special and I will finally be the person that I always truly, hopefully dream that I could be wrong. That's all a big lie. That's all just a big lie. See, John knew the value of simplicity. John knew that his identity didn't come from what he bought. His identity didn't come from what he, what he wore or the way, that he, the way that he presented himself to other people. John knew the value of simplicity. See, John was a prophet. And John knew what happened to prophets that he was going to die for this message, John knew full well that when he was dead and when he was done, he wasn't going to take any of this stuff with him. And John knew that the less you have, the less you have to worry about. And he knew the value of simplicity, that you can do more with less 
John lived a simple life. He's like, I'm not taking this stuff with me anyway. I've been called to do one thing and I'm going to do that thing. And he lived simply. So my question for you is this. Do you live a simple life? Something for you to think about. The second is to live as a witness. John was a witness. That he was the messenger, he was the prophet sent to prepare the way. And John was in the wilderness and he lived his life as a witness. John knew that there are people who are in the wilderness. John knew that there were people who were lost and hurting and suffering and struggling. John knew that there were people who, who, who needed the message. And so John lived his life as a witness in the wilderness. Everything about John's life, all of his ounce of passion was pointed to leading as many people to Jesus as possible. John lived his life as a witness. So my question for you is this. How is your witness? How is your witness? Do you have people that you know and love? People that you know by name? People that you care for who are not following Jesus? Do you have friends who are in their wilderness? That they're hurting? That they need a word from the Lord? That they are far from God? That they need, they, they need forgiveness? Do you have friends of yours who are in the wilderness? Okay, how is your witness to them? Are you investing? Are you inviting people to church or to community group? Are you praying with them? Are you praying for them? How is your witness? Some of you are going to balk at this. You're like, no, 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 no. John, of course John was the witness. I mean, that's John, right? My name's Steve. I'm not a witness, right? That's, that's not who I am. Like, that's not my job. Like, that's the pastor's job. That's the preacher's job. Maybe some prophets, evangelists. That's not my responsibility. That's not my spiritual gifting. No, 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 no. I'm not the witness. No, friends, you are that it's all of our responsibilities to be a witness. See, God doesn't call prophets. God doesn't just call pastors. God doesn't just call preachers. God calls people. And if you belong to Jesus, then it's our responsibility to lead as many people to him as possible. In order to do so, we need to learn to be a witness. The other day in our, our deacons meeting, they asked me, they said, Pastor Byron, what is, what is your dream for our church? If you could see one thing this year, what would it be? And without hesitation, my dream for each and every single one of you is that you would know someone by name who steps in that water. That you would have someone that you were able to witness to from wilderness to water. That's my prayer for you. That you would have one person, every single person in this room would have one person that they were able to go as a witness from their wilderness to step in that water. When was the last time you had somebody step in that water? When was the last time you knew them by name? When was the last time that you prayed for them? You walked with them. You were in community group with them. You shared a meal with them. That you invited them. When was the last time that someone you know by name was to move from wilderness to water? That's my prayer for you. That you would get the joy of being able to see someone you love be baptized. In order to do that, we need to learn how to live as a witness. Well, the third thing is he lived humbly. Now listen, John could have been famous. I mean, he totally could have been famous. He could have been very wealthy. He could have been very rich. I mean, think, he had all of the country coming to see him. This could be upwards of 300,000 people who were flocking to listen to the message of John. And they're coming to him. I'm pretty sure that he could have turned a prophet off of being a prophet. I'm pretty sure that he could have made a lot of money. That the record labels would come to him and say, John, here's a fat check. We want to take this show on the road. Right? The, the book publishers are coming to him. They're like, John, we want you to write us a book. Right, we're going to give you a book of the Bible. I know there's this other guy named John. He wrote a couple of four books, but we'll scratch him. Right, And we're going to give you your own book. John, John, here's the check. Sign on the dotted line. We're having a big church conference. Right, All pastors are coming and they really want to know, like, what's your secret? How do you get people to come out into the wilderness and listen to you yell? How do you do that, John? We're all clamoring. We want to know. God, John, tell us what it is that you do. And John's like, nah, I'm not interested in those things. What do you mean, John? You are the greatest. And John says, after me comes someone who is mightier than I, whose strap of sandals I am not even worthy to stoop down and tie. See, John knew his place. John knew his role. John knew that I'm the opening act, that I'm the warm-up, right? I I'm the pregame show, right? That's who I am. But after me comes someone who is far greater than I because John's secret to greatness was to live for someone greater than himself. And John knows that Jesus is coming and it's my job to prepare the way. He was a servant. 
John lived his life with humility. He said, my job is to humbly serve. That's why I'm here. Now, some of you, when you hear this, you're going to read, okay, John was not worthy. That must be, must be what it means to be humble, humble, right? Not worthy. Oh, that's me. I'm not worthy. And so I'm going to be humble. Okay, that's actually not what it means. C.S. Lewis, he famously said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, which so many of you do. You think very low of yourself. He says it's not thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking of yourself less. And so, so John wasn't walking around saying, well, I'm not that big of a deal, right? I'm not important, right? Nobody loves me and nothing that I do is really going to be any difference. Oh, I'm so humble. That's how some of you walk around. You, you walk around with your shoulders down. And you think, well, nothing I do really matters and I'm never going to make a difference and nobody really wants me here anyway. Oh, I'm unworthy and so I'm very humble. Okay, friends, I love you, but that's not humility, right? That's actually pride masquerading itself as humility because you're still thinking about yourself. Gotcha. See, John, he, he wasn't thinking about John. Who was he thinking about? Jesus. See, see, John, he wasn't thinking about how worthless he was, but rather how worthy Jesus is. And that's what humility is. Focusing, thinking, looking towards the worthiness of Jesus and then receiving your worth from his. See, that's what humility is. It's not thinking less of yourself, but rather it's thinking more about Christ. He lived as a humble servant. Now, my question here for you is this. Okay, how humble are you? But that's a trick question, so don't answer it. Because right? if you answer it, if you're like, oh yeah, I'm humble, right? You lose your humility. Like that's not the way that works. You can't be like, oh, me, 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 me. I'm the humble one. Pick me, pick me. How's my humility? It's actually pretty good. Like I really like it. I got a minor in it in college, right? I wrote a paper, I got a 4.0. I could teach the class on humility. Okay, you could also teach a class on hypocrisy because that's what you are. See, nobody can say, oh, I'm so humble. What we need to say is I'm learning to live humbly. So, who do you serve? How is your humility? Are you focused on yourself or are you focused on Jesus? It's an important question. Well, number four is he lived with focus. Okay, John's job was to be the Baptist, right? He was the Baptist. He lived with focus. That he, he baptized people. He knew what he did, right? I'm the Baptist. This is my job. This is my role. I do one thing, right? I do one thing and I do it better than anybody else. I am the Baptist. John lived his life with focus, okay? We don't call him John the preacher. We don't call him John the prophet. We don't call him John the, the, John the community group leader. We, we don't call him John the, the CEO. We don't call him John the janitor. We don't call him John the soccer mom. We don't call him John the carpool lane driver. No, we call him John the Baptist, right? Because what did he do? He baptized people. John lived his life with focus. John said, no, this is what I do. Right? And I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it well, and I'm going to do it better than anyone else because John knew that this is, this is my job. He lived his life with focus. Now listen, some of you, you try to do everything, and as a result, you end up doing nothing because you don't have focus. That you're running around like a crazy person, and you're making everybody else very anxious because you are, and so everybody's like, oh my God, what do you do? And you're running around, and you're stressed, and you're tired, and you're anxious, and you're exhausted, and you're frustrated, and your life is unfulfilled because you're trying to do everything. And as a result, you end up doing nothing. Now, some of you, you don't do anything, and you need to get up, and you need to get to work. But others of you, you're so stressed and so tired because you try to do everything, and as a result, you end up doing nothing. Listen, God has not called you to do everything, but he has called you to do something. That he has asked of you one thing. What is the one thing that God is speaking into your heart? Find that, focus on that. Give your effort, give your intention, give your energy, give your devotion to that one thing so you can learn to do one thing well. He hasn't asked you to do everything, but he has asked you to do something. So do that. This is the hardest lesson that I've learned. Over the last two years, this has been one of my biggest mistakes in the church. That for two years, I've tried to do everything. And as a result, I've robbed you from doing what God has called you to do. Because I wanted to do everything and I wasn't able to be what God has actually called me to be. I was so worried about being behind the church planter and behind the preacher and, and behind the community group leader and behind the you know, website builder and behind the graphics coordinator and the social media director. And I was behind the you know, truck driver and the coffee setter upper. And I was behind everything and I wasn't to be behind what God had called me to be. I wasn't being a good buyer and the husband. I wasn't buyer and the daddy. And I wasn't able to be buyer and the pastor. 
because I didn't live my life with focus. God has not called you to do everything, but he has called you to do something. Who are you? John says, me? I'm the Baptist. He knew what it was that he was supposed to do. So do you live with focus? Well, the fifth thing is to live in the Spirit. Now, this is the most important thing, okay? Because if you miss this, then you miss everything, right? Without the Holy Spirit, all the things that you do might as well go back to being religious, that it's just good works, but it doesn't lead to your godly life. And so the most important thing he says, he says is that I baptize you with water, but he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's talking about a life in the Spirit. This is the most important thing because without the Holy Spirit, you are going to go right back, continually, constantly walking in that wilderness, going in circles, repeating the cycle. You are going to be in process. You are going to be in that same pattern, but repentance breaks that pattern, but the Holy Spirit brings the change. You need to be baptized in that Holy Spirit. John says, John says that I come to preach the baptism for your sins, but he is going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. That I baptize you in water, but he is going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. That I have access to your ears, but he has access to your heart. That I baptize you for your repentance, but he will baptize you for your righteousness. That I baptize you for your old life, but he will baptize you for your new life. That your new life with him, he will change you, not from the outside in, but rather the inside out. John says that I am just the messenger. He is the Messiah, that he is the king, and I am just a servant, that he is greater, he is a savior, because he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and will totally transform every aspect of your life. You need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, because your life will change. See, John is trying to teach you, you need to learn how to wait, because he's trying to teach you how to live for Jesus. John is teaching you, you need to learn how to listen because he's trying to teach you how to live for Jesus. John is trying to tell you, you need to receive, you need to respond because all of his life is trying to show us how to live a life for Jesus. If you want to live for him, you need to learn from John because he was the greatest man who ever lived. His life will tell us something. It'll show us and prepare the way. So that way we can live for Christ. And friends, let me tell you this. There is nothing better than a life lived for Jesus. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at the gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us for one of our two services at 930 or 1115 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are welcome too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.